We're going to turn in our Bibles uh, tonight to Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. Before I read the verse that I want to read to you that gives us some insight into this message tonight, I'd like to first draw your attention to the very next chapter and the 15th verse, chapter 22 and verse 15. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us tonight to um, <clears throat> have a desire to be here that would in some measure uh, be like the desire that you have to be here with us. And this is our prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I don't know when it was, but it was a long time ago. I was reading this passage. And you'll often have this experience when you'll be reading the Bible and you'll come across a verse that just captures your attention. And this verse right here did really many years ago. And I pondered it for a considerable period of time. And I wanted to understand it. I, I wanted to get a handle on it because it seemed to me to be one of the most powerful statements I'd ever read, but I didn't understand why. Well, we've gathered here in this meeting and as has been taught in this church recently, the host of this meeting is God. And the third person of the Trinity is here in this room right now. And he's our host and he has invited us to sit at his table to feed upon something. What was that? What is that? It's to feed upon the message of the sacrifice, the message of the cross. The desire that God has for us to really understand why he came into this world is enormous, enormous. And we see something of that in this verse. We see the desire of God to be here in this meeting tonight. And he says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the message of the cross. And he's, his desire is for us to understand what he was fixing to do, and no one did. No one did. And there are so many people in the world today that do not understand the message of the cross and the passion of the Lord Jesus and the joy that was set before him to endure the cross and suffer the things that he suffered there for you and me. He had with desire... I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He's talking about us sitting there and feeding upon something. Feeding upon what? It's his word. And here we are tonight at Calvary Memorial Church. And if there's anything that would be a blessing to God, it would be for us to have a desire that in some way was appreciative of his desire to sit at the table with us and, and fellowship together over this message. 
Psalmist David in Psalm 27 and verse 4, I believe it is, said, One thing have I desired, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. I think that's what the Lord is looking for tonight. He doesn't... He's not looking for people that come here saying, I hope that the message is really short so we can go home and do whatever we do. Folks, we've got to understand how precious these moments are when we can gather together like this in advance of his coming. With this one singular desire that we would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To understand better the message of heaven. To understand better how God thinks and to understand better his ways. That's why we're here. And this is the one thing that's converted in a person that's truly saved is God converts our desire for away from the things of the world to a desire to be like him. And so as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about a verse that's real close to this verse about God's desire to eat this Passover with the disciples before he suffered so that they could just sort of enter into what he was doing. And we find in the previous chapter, in the chapter 21, that the disciples had come to the Lord wanting to know when he was going to come back. When he going to come back? Well, to a genuine believer, uh, that ought to be uppermost in our thoughts. Is the Lord Jesus Christ coming back? So that we can see him and be with him and have fellowship with him. Enter into this unity that we see in the Trinity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To be one with him rather than one with the world. And so the disciples come to him, and in verse 7, they ask him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what, shall, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Well, I want you to think about God's heart and what he says in his answer. The first thing that came to his mind was, take heed that you be not deceived. <clears throat> take heed that you be not deceived. I don't think there's anything that could break the heart of a parent down here on earth that has children that they love than for their children to grow up and go out here into the world and someone take advantage of them and destroy their life. Deception is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And if you're deceived about something and you do not realize the consequences of the choices that you make in life, you can absolutely ruin your life with one decision. One decision. And our Father in heaven knows that. And when it comes to the last days, what he sees operating in this world of people where his children live, that he loves, and that he was going to die for is a problem of deception. Deception. 
And then he tells us something else about it. He says, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. Well, what, how are we supposed to think about that? There'll be many that come in my name saying, I am Christ. I want to give you a parallel verse that will help you understand what he was talking about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 4, it would be in the churches that people would come, preachers would come, preaching another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. That's what he's talking about. In other words, in the last days, when I come back, and that's what he's talking about, they're asking him, when are you coming back? And he's talking about the last days. He's talking about his second coming. And he's saying, take heed that no man deceives you. And then he says, there are going to be many that are going to deceive you by telling you that their version of Christ is Christ. He says, it's not true. What they're going to say about me is not me. It's another Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the true and living God. It's another Jesus. It's another spirit. It's another gospel. It's a different kind of good news. And so this is the Lord's passion in terms of how he wants his disciples that he loved so much. This is the first thing that came to his mind as he thought about warning those that he loved about the last days. Take heed to no man to see you. You're going to very likely end up in a church where the teaching is not going to really be true about me. It's not going to help you understand my thoughts and my ways. It's going to be another Jesus that doesn't conflict with the way you think and with your ways. And that's the great deception of the last days. And it's the essence of what is going on in denominationalism. I'm telling you that all around us are churches that are preaching another Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. There are preachers that are not telling you the horrible message from heaven. And they never will. And the reason is because they don't want to drive people away. But the Lord wants it preached. He certainly does. And this is his warning. And so there's two things that are in this verse that the Lord is warning us about. One is deception. And the disaster it can bring into your life when you are deceived about the truth. The truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. And the only source available to us for knowing the truth about him is his own autobiography. It's his word. But I want to give you something to think about when it comes to this subject of deception. Usually when we think about deception, we think about it being something out there that's going to deceive us in here. And that's the wrong way to think about it because that's not the primary problem. It is not the primary problem. The deception that the Lord is talking about here, and you'll, if you think about it, 
you'll see the truth of what I'm fixing to tell you. You have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden to see what the real threat was. The real threat was not Satan, and most people in most churches think that it was. That Eve was deceived because of Satan and his twisting of the word. But that was not the primary reason for the fall. The primary reason for the fall was her free will to believe the lie. And so when the Lord says, take heed that no man deceive you, the main thing really that we need to think about is not those people out there and what they say. It's our responsibility to go to the true church and hear the truth so that our free will is armed with what the Lord Jesus was armed with when Satan came to him. What did he say? It is written. It is written. It is written. Folks, the only thing that can protect us from deception is the fundamentalist belief that is embraced in this church concerning the importance of the word of God that was inspired by God and preserved by God throughout perpetual generations. Preservation is just as important as inspiration. And if God did not preserve his word, then inspiration of the word would be meaningless because evil men would have corrupted it and God knows that this is some of the simplest logic you'll ever think about God inspired his word and preserved his word and those two things are united together and what God has united let no man put asunder you can't separate those two things And so the greatest fear in life is not external, it's internal, it's free will. But God has designed a method of protecting the free will. So that every time you make a choice, it's not the result of deception. God is not a deceiver. He has told us the truth. He's told us the truth. And when we're knowledgeable of his word, we're not going to be deceived. We can go before Satan and say, it is written, it is written, it is written. Don't deceive me with those thoughts because I know the truth. And so the greatest fear when it comes to deception is not out there, it's you. It's you and me. And we're without excuse because God has given us his word. That's why it's so important to be faithful to the meetings and to realize that the Holy Spirit is here in every one of them. He's always on time. And he always has a desire to eat this Passover with you. The greatest cause of deception is what you want in your nature. That's the greatest cause of the deception that gets us off track is every day we live with things that we want in our nature. When people have come to me with problems and tears and want to talk and I'd ask them, you know, well, what's going on? What's the problem? They say, I don't know. I don't know. After a period of time, I learned that they were lying to me. They knew what the problem was. 
They didn't want to admit it. And I learned that if you want to get to the root of a person's problem, there but one question you have to ask them. Just one question. What do you want? What do you want? If you want to get to the root of anybody's misery, I don't care what it is, just ask them that question. What do you want? What is it you want? You're so unhappy because you want something and you're not getting it, right? Well, I guess so. So we need to understand the root of the problem, the root of the problem with deception. It's what we want. Well, there isn't a lot of time to go over a lot of the things that are here in a message like this, but what I'd like to mention to you for just a few minutes is something that we've been told in this church before, but it's very suitable to mention it again to put things in perspective because there's an angle in this message that I'd like to present to you that I think is critically important. And the thing that we're pretty much familiar with in this church is the fact there are only two religions in the world. There are only two religions in the world. So that reduces the complexity down to something that's rather simple because there's only two possibilities. And we're confronted with them in the book of Genesis. <clears throat> in the first place we're confronted with the true religion is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, where the Lord tells Adam the truth, the true religion was in the second chapter. He said, there's two trees in the garden. There's a tree of life, and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, don't eat of that one. And that was the truth. And he told him, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He told him the truth. That's the true religion. The other religion is found in Genesis chapter 11. It has to do with Babylonianism. And this message tonight is essentially about Babylonianism, a term that I think needs explanation so that we get a better handle on what Babylonianism is. Babylonianism is in stark contrast to the true religion. Babylonianism is an attempt on the part of man to have unity without God. Pastor Garrison brought some great messages on that subject when he was uh, preaching out of that portion of scripture. Uh, and so the message of the Bible is how to have unity with God. And the way to have unity with God is to have his thoughts and his ways as our thoughts and our ways. In such a way that there's perfect unity between us and the three persons of the Trinity. That's what the true religion is designed to do. John's Gospel, chapter 17, is about that unity. It's the prayer of Jesus Christ to his Father concerning our inclusion in his eternal family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we might be one unity. Where you can't have unity if your thoughts conflict with another person. But man without God has attempted 
to have unity another way. By another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. But it doesn't result in unity with God. It results in unity with the world. And as we're going to see, when you study Babylonianism, it has absolutely nothing to do with the true God of heaven. It has everything to do with what Paul warned about when he warned about the preaching of another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And it's exactly what the Lord Jesus was warning the disciples about when he said, take heed that no man deceive you. There are going to be many that come in my name and deceive many. But they're not going to be preaching about me. They're going to be preaching about what they want me to be in their way of thinking. In their worldview, they are trying to convert me to be like them rather than me convert them to be like me. And so it's what I've called in previous messages a conversion contest. And that's exactly what's going on in the churches today the conversion contest. Are we going to convert God to be the way we want him to be? Or are we going to humble ourselves and be broken over what we're really like and allow him to do that work that only he can do, and that is convert us to be like him, which is only possible by the gift of God. <clears throat> I'd like for you to turn with me to Psalm 115. And I'll show you what Babylonianism is. Psalm 115. Let's read it, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. For thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heavens say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold and work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. And then we have this statement. It's verse 8, and this is the most important one. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Okay, the Lord is describing an idol. And he's saying things that are very obvious. They can't see. I mean, how can a stone or a piece of wood see anything? How can, how can a stone actually speak? You can't speak. I mean, what can they do with their hands? I mean, they're carved and they're fixed. They can't do anything. They can't work. They can't do anything. But isn't that exactly what the Lord has said about you and me without him? We're blind. We can't see. We can't work. He said, without me, you can do nothing. And so Babylonianism is inventing a God that is not the God of the Bible. It's a God that we have invented in our own mind that is like unto ourselves. And what are we really like? I'll tell you what we're really like. 
Without God, we can do absolutely nothing. Like a stone. Like a stone carving. And so you see, the carvings, these images that they would carve in the Old Testament and set up, were really projections out of their own head of how they wanted God to be. They wanted God to be like they were. And they believed they could see, just like the Pharisees, they believed they could see. The Lord said to them, you're really blind. You think you can see because your eyes can see the world. But the truth is, you're blind. You can't see anything. They couldn't see the scriptures. They couldn't see the truth of the scriptures. But they were busy trying to convert God and what they wanted him to be. But when you do that, you've got a God that can do absolutely nothing, just like yourself. What can we do without God? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. We haven't got time to go to Psalm 135, 18, but it's the same way. It's the same thought. They that make them are likened to them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. But one of the first verses that I, I think is so important in connection with this, and if you're the, person, the kind of person that makes cross-references, I would encourage you to write this down. It's Psalm 50 in verse 21. It's been spoken of numbers of times in this church. Psalm 50 in verse 21 says this, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. And then he says it, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. Folks, that is a description of Babylonianism. Babylonianism is, in most people's thinking, just a system of religion that's practiced by people, by heathens, and we're not them. And what our big failure is, failing to realize that Babylonianism is you and me in our nature. We live every day of our life trying to convert God to be somebody that thinks the way we do and wants the same things that we want. And our nature is to love the world and the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. It's true of every one of us. There's not one person that's different. Babylonianism is not out there. Babylonianism is in here. This is where it is. It's in you and it's in me. And the great deception is thinking that the problem is out there. No, it's not. It's not out there. The problem has to do with our free will. It's internal. That is the problem. It has to do with our nature that has to be converted to be like Christ. And the message of the Bible, if we'll believe this message, it will cause us to hate our life. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you love Babylonianism, you're going to lose your life. This is what the Lord was warning the disciples about when he said, take heed that no man deceive you. They're going to preach to you another Jesus. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be the Jesus of the Bible. You've got to go to this book. To the law, to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Babylonianism is going a different direction. Away from God, into a system, into a denominational system of religion that is preaching another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. There are churches all around that think that God 
is altogether such a one as we are. He's not. So with these remarks, I'd like to take us to the New Testament to think about some things. And I want to spend the rest of our time in the book of the Revelation because the very last thing that God left as a message to the churches was what he inspired the Apostle John to write. And so the book of the Revelation was written to the churches. The church is where the Lord's Holy Spirit would be, which is the pillar and ground of truth. And he wanted the disciples to go to that pillar and ground of truth where they could come to know the true God. And we know that the Son of God has come. This is what the Apostle John wrote about. If any man come unto you and preach not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he's not of God. And so John goes on to say in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come. God came into the world, in the flesh, and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. One of the most profound verses in all the word of God is 1 John 5, 20. And this is God's desire that we, we would go to the church, the pillar and ground of truth, to hear the truth about God and not be deceived about his identity. If we're going to get his identity right, we've got to know how he thinks and we've got to know his ways. And we know this by what is written. It is written. It is written. And if anyone preaches any other gospel, Paul's letter to the Galatians, let him be accursed. There's not another gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one Jesus Christ. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's only one gospel. But when you go to these other places, if you're not careful, you're going to get deceived. Because they're not going to be preaching from the King James Bible. They've never understood the problem with versions. They've never understood the other Jesus, the other spirit, the other gospel. And so in the book of the Revelation, in the last days, the Lord is writing to the churches and the whole book of Revelation is to the church, the true church. And the main thing that he's going to talk about is Babylonianism. And that's a subject that we need to get a handle on. We need to understand that subject. And so I'm going to say some things to you tonight with what time remains that will help us get a little better handle on it, I think, if we'll ponder it. The world church of the last days is an attempt to have unity in the world. That's what the new world order is, is an attempt to have unity, just like in Genesis chapter 11, without God. Unity without the truth of the Bible. Unity with another Jesus, another spirit and another gospel. We've learned so far tonight that basically what this is is idolatry 
which is the worship of self. Please understand that anytime you read about idolatry in the Bible, it's not talking about something out there. It's talking about something that originates in here and it's projected out there. And so if it originates in here as a way of thinking that is wrong because we're deceived, then the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And that's what the Lord is teaching us about deception. Our inclination is to think that deception is something out there. Somebody's going to come and deceive us. And the Lord is trying to teach us, you don't have a thing to worry about if you go to the law, to the testimony. If you always speak according to this word, you're not going to get deceived. Because they have no light in them, but you do. And that's how we're supposed to think about it. And so you've got a letter to the seven churches. Another mistake, I think, sometimes in reading about the seven churches is to look at them as though the problem was just unique to that church and didn't have anything to do with the other churches. But it says seven times in there concerning each church, there were seven churches in Asia, and his closing statement to every letter to each church was, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, plural. So what's true in any particular church that he's going to speak about is something that you need to be alerted about in every church. And I think that's important to see. But I know that there's all kinds of theological differences about how you're to understand the book of the Revelation, and I'm, I'm aware of that. All I'm trying to do is give you some thoughts to think about, and if it helps you to understand it better, then use it. If you get confused by it, then discard it. But I think the Lord is simultaneously not only talking about what is true really in all the churches that he's describing here, he's also given us something of a progression that's going to end up in a church like Laodicea, where he's not in it. He's outside of it. The Laodicean church is a picture of Babylonianism. I think it's critically important to understand that point. Laodicea is a picture of a church that had fallen into this deception of believing another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And there's not another. And Paul wrote to Galatians and he told them, if anybody preaches any other gospel, unto you than that which I preached unto you. He said, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, be ye followers of me. That's what he said. Do you realize, folks, that that's not a prideful statement? Any Christian that knows the truth that is in Christ Jesus ought to be able to say exactly the same thing. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, be you followers of me. I'm telling you the truth because I've studied. It's in the book. That's all you got to do. Kent used to have a picture back here in his office of the fundamentalist. He's the ugliest person you've ever seen in that picture. And he's got his glasses on. He's got his old crooked finger stuck on the book. And it's, the caption underneath is, it's in the book. In the book. Well, the picture is ugly.
because that's how the world sees the Bible-believing Christian, as an ugly person. It's always negative, always negative. Always discouraging. You leave the church convicted, feeling bad. People don't want to feel bad. They want to feel good. So they go to a church where they can feel good. But we're in a fundamentalist church. And the Lord has acquainted us with the horrible message from heaven that is absolutely necessary to receive or you can't be saved. We have to believe what the Bible says. We're horrible. We're so bad that Jesus Christ, God, was the only one that could save us. That's bad. You got to have a, I mean, when your lifeguard has to be God, you got a problem. You got a problem. We're talking about the best lifeguard in the world. We're talking about a Samson beyond imagination. A strength. We're talking about a Solomon with wisdom that is beyond imagination that would cause Bathsheba to leave Solomon's present with no spirit left in her because she was so overwhelmed by the wisdom of Solomon. It takes the wisdom of God to save us from what we are. And with desire, he had this desire to sit at the table and, and eat this Passover with us before he suffered so that we could understand the magnitude of the problem, so that we could understand mercy and grace. You can't understand mercy and grace. You can't understand so great a death and so great salvation without understanding the horrible message from heaven. It's horrible. It's horrible. The scariest book I've ever read is the Bible. But it was talking about me. I'm the scariest thing in the world. And I have to see myself that way. I have to see the danger of my own free will and how it can destroy me and cause me to be cast into the lake of fire forever without any possibility of escape. The horrible message from heaven. But the gospel, the good news, is that this loving God, when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. This is the love of God for us. This is the desire that he had when he wanted the disciples to eat this Passover with him before he suffered. He desired unity with them. He wanted to be one with them. The problem in this book is we don't want unity with him. That's the problem. The problem is not the love of God for us. The problem is our hatred of him. That's the message of this book. That's what Nicodemus did not understand. Nicodemus was in the dark. He didn't know that he hated the light, but he did. And it took him the whole of John's gospel to finally come around and be there after it was all over. The Lord wanted to eat that Passover with him before he suffered. But Nicodemus didn't get the opportunity to do that. He went to the cross and he died very much alone. But that's the love of God for us. He was willing to do it alone, whether anybody understood it or not. He loved us that much. We haven't got time to go through all of the things that are said about the seven churches, but I can tell you 
that Babylonianism is creeping in, and it finally finds a resting place in Laodicea. Now, listen, look at this, and we'll look at it hurriedly. Go to Revelation chapter 4, and let's look at verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, now notice what we read, because this is important. I want to show the connection between verse 17 and Revelation chapter 18. Because thou sayest, in verse 17, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, we haven't got time to look into this the way I would really like to. But what I would like to do is just tell you what I believe is true. And you're going to have to study the Bible on your own and find out whether or not what I'm telling you, what I'm fixing to tell you is true. But my inclination is to believe that it is. I believe that the Babylonianism of chapter 17 and 18 is really the church in America today. The Lord tells us and gives us this leading thought as he's addressing the church at Laodicea, and he says, you think you're rich? You're rich. You're living deliciously. Deliciously. You've got so much, you have need of nothing. Now turn to Revelation chapter 18. Verse 1. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That's a description of the churches in America right now today. I believe until somebody can convince me otherwise that Revelation chapter 18 is the United States of America. It's a description of the apostate church in the United States of America. I don't see how anybody could read this chapter and come up with a different conclusion. That's the truth. I really don't. I've pondered this thought for several years I taught out of Revelation for seven years in this church. And so help me, I cannot see how it can be any other country than this, the United States of America. Read with me, verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The influence of America is enormous. There's no other country in the world that has infested the church the way the United States has. The world church of America. The preaching of another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. It's a global influence that we have. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And this is exactly what the Lord said about Laodicea. You're rich. You're rich. You don't have a need for me. It's like the Chinaman that came over and visited the United States and then went back to China and the people asked him what impressed him the most about America. And he said, 
The thing that impressed me the most is what they could do without God. What the churches in America could do without God. That's Laodicea. They had no need of God. God was on the outside knocking, wanting to get in. They didn't want him in. And I heard another angel from heaven saying, verse 4, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. And that's a plea for people like ourselves that used to be maybe in bad denominations, and the Lord brought us out. He did me. Sure did. Brought me here. I'm so thankful for that. You're not going to catch me missing meetings in this church. You're not going to catch me doing that. I'm, if I'm late, there's going to be a good reason. I'm going to be here. I believe with all my soul that God the Holy Spirit is in this place. I sure do. I believe that. And I believe the greatest respect that we can show is to understand that and act accordingly. I think it's critically important. Let's go down to verse 7. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. When she says, I'm no widow, you remember Isaiah 54. You know what the widow spoke of? It was that the Jews had killed their husband. The Lord said, I am married unto you. And Israel became a widow because she crucified the Lord of glory. But the Babylonian church does not believe that they're so bad that they would do that, that they would kill God. No, I'm not that kind of person. I would never kill God. But the message of this book is, yes, we will. We hate him. In our nature, we hate him. We need to be converted. She says, I'm no widow. I'm not guilty of his blood. And that's the way most people think in the churches today. They think that Jesus Christ died for just one reason, to just show in this exceptional way, his great love, his love, his love for me. No, he died in my place, the death I deserved. There's a difference. There's a difference. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament her. And it talks about the merchants of the earth, and it goes on and on and on. And the other thing that's mentioned here over and over is uh, uh, that great city. The word great is a prominent term in that whole chapter. And I think it's very interesting. That's Donald Trump's favorite word, to make America great again make America great again in whose sight not in God's sight he's going to destroy that world church in one hour I believe it's talking about the United States of America I don't see how a person can read that chapter come up with any other conclusion. That's the truth. That's how I feel about it. I may be wrong, but that's how I understand the scriptures. Our time is gone. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for this place. Thank you for our pastor. Ask your richest blessings upon him. Thank you for the church family that's here and the love that you've given us for one another, and the love that you've given us for your word. Thank you for those that are faithful. 
Help us to be more so as we see the day approaching. Very soon you're going to come. And your word was, he that hath his hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. When we look for the soon return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had this desire to be with us and to eat this Passover with us before you suffered. Thank you for these things. We'll make this prayer in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.